My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Joe Kerno and Bronwyn Dobchuk-Land. In February 2019, without warning, the Millennium Library, that is the main public library in downtown Winnipeg, implemented security measures similar to what you find in airports. Here's the context. As is true in so many cities, public space in Winnipeg's downtown is highly contested. Existing residents are disproportionately indigenous and poor, and in barely coded racist and classist ways, it gets tagged with labels like dangerous and run down. City elites are encouraging the kind of capital investment and social reorganization that some might call revitalization, but that others would name displacement and gentrification. And in entirely predictable ways, the things that are done to make the downtown more inviting and comfortable for whiter and wealthier Winnipeggers also tend to make it less accessible and less safe for people who already live there, particularly people who are already more marginalized. The library administration explained the new security measures by arguing that there was an urgent need to act in response to an increase in quote-unquote incidents happening in the library. In explaining what these incidents consist of, they emphasized violence and the threat of it. In general, public libraries are one of the few public spaces remaining which work to be welcoming to everyone and do not require you to spend money to be there. No other public library anywhere in Canada uses these kinds of security checkpoints. In making this decision, the library administration consulted with police, but not with library patrons, or even with their own advisory board. A more rigorous examination of the incidents in question reveals that there has been no increase, most were not violent, and those few that were violent would mostly not have been prevented by bag checks and metal detectors anyway. The library administration's identification of dangerous and potentially violent patrons as the reason for the checkpoints invokes existing racist stereotypes tied to downtown Winnipeg and the people who live there. According to today's guests, research shows that rather than making people safe, what security checkpoints actually do is create barriers of various kinds to marginalized people entering a space. Indeed, usage of the library is down by at least 25% compared to the same period in 2018. Community opposition to the new security measures has taken lots of different forms from lots of different sources, but one important nexus for resistance came together under the name Millennium for All. They've focused on being strategic in how and where they exert pressure on the library and the city. They have, of course, done cleverly themed public actions, a read-in, a shush-in, and so on. And they've also made careful choices about how and when to meet with decision-makers, which municipal committees to present to, when to mobilize supporters, and how to amplify their message via the media. Millennium for All has also released their own detailed report on the situation, rebutting most of the fundamentals of the Library Administration's account of the security change. 
Among other things, the report talks about the approaches successfully taken by other Canadian public libraries and highlights the effectiveness of being welcoming, reducing barriers to access, offering resources and supports for marginalized people, and having firm and gentle guidelines around conduct that emphasize de-escalation, in order to make libraries genuinely welcoming and safe for as broad a range as possible of patrons and staff. The group recently won a small but crucial victory. City Council was debating making the new security measures permanent, but mobilized community pressure convinced them not to do so. While the checkpoints are still in place, there is now an opening for further organizing to push the library in the city to remove them. And Millennium for All has bigger goals as well. They want to take aim at the broader agenda of development and securitization that is trying to remake Winnipeg's downtown. Joe Curnow is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Manitoba. Bronwyn Dobchuk-Land is an assistant professor of criminal justice at the University of Winnipeg. And both are actively involved in Millennium for All. They speak with me about the new security checkpoints in Winnipeg's Millennium Library and about the community struggle against them. My name is Bronwyn Dobchuk-Land. I'm assistant professor of criminal justice at the University of Winnipeg. I study the carceral state in Manitoba and Western Canada and its relationship to settler colonialism. I also am involved in an organization called Bar None. We run a prison visiting rideshare project and we're also broadly trying to do prisoner solidarity work and anti-criminalization work. I'm originally from Winnipeg and I went to school in Montreal and Toronto and New York. So I'm also constantly trying to build connections between what's happening in Winnipeg and anti-criminalization, anti-prison work that's happening elsewhere. And my name is Jill Kernow. I am an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Manitoba. My research looks at how activists learn about race, settler colonialism, gender capitalism, and how their learning helps them to become more radical and more effective in their organizing. So my background is as a community organizer in the U.S., where I worked in Washington, D.C. and Chicago before coming to Canada. And so I'm interested in how people learn through their activism and how we build power to stop things like the securitization in Millennium Library. In February of this year, Millennium Library, which is the downtown library in Winnipeg, implemented airport-like security screening. They did this without any consultation. It just kind of started and city councilors were appalled, community members were appalled, and community members organized a public meeting to talk about the ways that this was impacting their ability to use the library and how it cut to the heart of what a library is and should be. And so from that, Millennium for All was born. We are a grassroots organization, a small group of community members who are really committed to public space, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, and trying to make the library what it ought to be, which means thinking much bigger than the library, but also immediately talking about how do we get rid of the security screening at Millennium? How do we bring in more resource for frontline workers at Millennium? How do we ensure consultation and a more robust process when decisions like this are being made for public services? And we've been pretty successful over the last eight months, we've been fighting and fighting. We've had huge read-ins in the library lobby. We've had read-outs where people spoke out at City Hall. And we recently released a huge report, which had the really positive effect of stopping City Council from making the security permanent, which is what they were attempting to do. And so now we have a long road ahead of us still in trying to get 
an exit strategy in place so that the security is taken down and replaced. What are the robust set of social services, things that other libraries do across Canada, like thinking around decolonial strategies, thinking about providing food, thinking about providing harm reduction in-house, and thinking about providing training for workers around anti-oppression. The securitization of the library sits in the context of broader changes in Winnipeg as a whole, Manitoba. In the report, we draw really heavily on the book Stolen City, Racial Capitalism and the Making of Winnipeg by Owen Taves, where he traces the process by which the city and the province have tried to fund a revitalization of downtown that's really structured around developer visions of profit making for downtown that are really pressed on ridding downtown of a lot of the people who live there and have made their own social spaces downtown. And really this vision that developers are trying to engineer where downtown is a place where they're really anxious about getting visitors from the suburbs to come and spend their money. So they will paint a picture of downtown as a place that has been dead or depressed or dangerous for a long time, but how many others would and do portray downtown is that it has been full of social spaces that have been really important to the people who live there. In the context of downtown revitalization, there's a lot of coded racist language and explicitly racist policy. So that's one of the contexts that the library sits in relation to. In that context, the police also have a specific downtown safety strategy that's premised really heavily on policing disorder. The policing already focuses really heavily on getting people off the street who look destitute or who just are perceived as threats by people who have, you know, lots of internalized racism about who and what is a threat in Winnipeg. All of this is happening in Winnipeg at the same time as there's a housing crisis, there's a lot of homelessness, the province has cut healthcare, cut social services, there's a drug crisis. The whole flurry of circumstances where people's lives are, you know, that much more squeezed and desperate has meant that there are a lot of people who are really poor and really stressed out and being actively pushed out of social life in Winnipeg. In Winnipeg, downtown is coded as an Indigenous space. And so when people talk about downtown being dangerous, they are signaling some dog whistle politics around anti-Indigenous racism. Indigenous people are the ones who are perceived to be dangerous, largely to white people, to settler folks. So like all of this should be understood through a lens of public space being closed to Indigenous people because it makes non-Indigenous people uncomfortable. And so one of the things that we've stressed a lot in Millennium for All is the difference between comfort and safety. What were the new security measures that were implemented in February? And what kinds of impacts has that had on library patrons? Millennium Library is this beautiful space that like many, many different people cite as one of their favorite things about living in Winnipeg. It's been renovated in a way that's really beautiful, calming public space, or it has been up until this point. The librarians are super helpful, as librarians are. And now when you walk into the lobby of the library, there are gates set up, like those airport-style gates. And then there are metal detector checkpoints and security guards. It's literally like the same as the airport. You have to drop your stuff on a table and get scanned. You they know, wand you. They go through all your bag. They take away things like scissors. They take away pocket knives. 
And early on, they were taking away a lot of stuff that mostly isn't dangerous. And certainly none of the things that they confiscate are things that would address the concerns that library workers have articulated that's allegedly caused the implementation of the security screening process. There's a real disjuncture between what the articulated concerns were by the library management, really, and what the security measures are. So there were concerns about, you know, people yelling or being disruptive in the library. There were concerns about people turning non-weapon items into weapons, which is something that apparently happened once. Like a computer printer being thrown. A computer printer being thrown, which again, like those things, security screenings wouldn't prevent. And we know through research on security and securitization, like there's a reason why it's called security theater. These types of checkpoints are not effective at preventing (laughs) violence. What they're effective at doing is causing people to self-select in terms of who's going to decide to enter through them in the first place. And also they're effective at giving security guards reason and opportunity to hassle who they feel, for whatever reason, often rooted in racism and classism, who they feel shouldn't be allowed to come into the library at a given moment. So they provide, much like policing on a broader scale, an infrastructure, a context in which discriminatory discretion is possible. So this security screening policy makes some people a lot less safe. There's lots of different people who are impacted by this policy. The library itself is being impacted. The recent report that the library services team released shows that there have been over a quarter of a million fewer visits to the library as a result of this. So it's had a catastrophic impact on usership. But more specifically, we can think about the ways that this is a racialized policy. People of color are far more likely, as Bronwyn said, to be targeted and to be harassed and to be pushed out. We know that survivors of sexual assault are much more likely to be in some ways triggered by this because there are security guards who are literally passing things over their bodies. We know that for survivors of residential school, the care system, and lots of other things, this is a really triggering experience. People have shared all sorts of places that they're coming from that make it really difficult for them emotionally to pass through those security screenings. So like people who have been in jail. We also hear about people with disabilities being pushed out. So people with intellectual disabilities who feel like they cannot go through it independently no longer can use this downtown space. We know that people who have health supplies in their bags have had those removed. So if you are diabetic, you either have to disclose your health concern to this like random security guard or just choose not to use the library. Mm -hmm. The same is true for drug users, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of people who might have supplies on them, which is exactly what you would want from a harm reduction perspective. You want people to have clean needles. Those are being confiscated, which is the worst possible outcome we could have in terms of public health. That example is a perfect example of the different paths that library management and the city could have taken in response to this type of issue. You can see needles as a threat in a very narrow vision of the world, or you can see, okay, people need a place to use drugs. They need a place to put their needles. People are being squeezed out of all sorts of other places that were previously available to them. 
that is an example of the opportunity that library management and people at the city had to take a position with the library as representative of, you know, struggles for public space more broadly and on the side of pushing for more public funding, more public spaces, more places for the people who are library patrons who are now, you know, squeezed out of every other place and concentrated in this one place in downtown. They've decided instead to consult with the police and take the police advice that the best possible way of dealing with this is through increased securitization, policing, enclosure, exclusion. What has the community response involved? The community response was swift and scornful toward the library services management team. Immediately, there were tons of letters to the editor arguing that this is not what public libraries should be about or how they should respond to the public. There was an early March public consultation. I think more than 70 people showed up to talk about their vision for the library and all of the possible alternatives that come out of the best practices of organizations that work downtown, whether that be harm reduction or homeless services. There's just like so much knowledge about how to manage these circumstances. People know how to navigate this without imposing security. After that, as Millennium for All as a group coalesced, we held a read-in where 250 people came and sat on the floor outside of the security screening and protested quietly by reading our books. And these are all folks who said, you know, I'm not willing to go through the screening, but I feel like it is important that people know that there are so many library users who are unhappy with this set of policies. And so that got quite a bit of press and put quite a lot of pressure on the library management. I think people in Winnipeg feel really beat down and depressed by a lot of the (laughs) assaults that have happened on public space, on public funding, the kind of everyday and structural racism in the city. So when the first meeting happened, there was a lot of energy, a lot of anger, but not necessarily a great sense of how to actually plan to win the fight to get these security measures taken down. And in that context, Joe, for example, who's new to the city, who comes with a lot of organizing knowledge and was able to come from the outside and suggest multiple ways to choose from that we could structure this campaign in order to actually have a win. That was a really refreshing and energizing and empowering context in which this organizing has actually been sustainable. Because I think people in Winnipeg are trying to fight back against this often. But as everywhere across North America, we've been deprived of a lot of actual knowledge about how to organize campaigns, how to organize people, and how to expect that we could actually win things like this rather than just like register our discontent in the public sphere. So I think that the organizing, knowledge, planning, the strategic nature of the campaign, mapping out, you know, who our actual targets are, what meetings we have to be at, what kind of voices we have to amplify in the media, what messages we have to amplify. There was a lot of strategy around that. And I think that that's one of the explanations for why this campaign has been as sustainable and grassroots and successful as it has been. One of the things that got said last night at a meeting from one of the Millennium for All members was that the organizing has changed what he thought was possible in Winnipeg politics, which tend to be pretty intransigent. This is such a bigger fight than the library, and winning the removal of library security is going to show people that we actually do have power to change things that are racist and that are foreclosing public space for all of us. One of the things that Winnipeg is great at is having deep social ties. 
that has been one of our biggest strengths in terms of being able to turn out pretty large numbers of people on pretty short notice. We have been working from a Midwest Academy strategy chart, not because it's the only tool or the best tool, but because it was something that we could work with really quickly. So going through a collective process, we identified targets of library management being able to give us what we want and have been pretty focused on library managers and the library services team through the city. That has meant that we have been trying to build power to put pressure on them, which also includes secondary targets of thinking about some city councilors who are involved in the Parks, Community Service, and Protection Standing Committee. The different tactics we've used have been mobilizations like the read-in and the library, the read-out at City Hall. We put together a pretty extensive report that goes head-to-head with the library services report, which is filled with really inappropriate and inaccurate claims about the scale of security threat at the library. Part of my research has been, over the last couple of years, looking at how cities sometimes use math really manipulatively to keep citizens from being able to engage and keeping activists thinking like, oh, I don't really know, I'm not good at math, I don't know how to do this. So we've gone head to head with the city and said, your numbers are wrong. But we think about that negotiating over the data and then negotiating the framing as secondary, because what the work is really always about building power. And so where the discussion of data and math and impact have been important, we're trying to create sustained pressure where the decision makers actually care about it. So from looking at your report and listening to what you've said today, one of the things that stands out about Millennium for All is how successful you've been in combining a radical naming of the issues with very practical, grounded organizing, not a combination that's always easy for movements. Talk more about how you've managed that. Part of the organizing chart that you described, Joe, the Midwest Academy, (laughs) is identifying what the issues are kind of at multiple scales. And doing that exact exercise of identifying the larger context, but actually bringing that down to what are the key decisions that have been made? Who are those decision makers? What are their weaknesses? Like who has connections to them? Like literally, how can we access them? What needs to be the behind the scenes strategy? What needs to be the front stage strategy? The nature of the initial anger and upset, people came to that with a pretty good systemic analysis, but not a sense of how to boil that down to a particular strategy and to identify particular goals. So that's where the craft of organizing actually came in. And I think that that's something that we can't talk enough about as organizers is that like, this is not just about taking your passion and intuiting how to like (laughs) direct it. There are practice models of getting decisions reversed, and we followed one of those models. I think there's lots of pressure for us to respond to every single thing that comes out. And it's really easy for a small group of people to end up spending a lot of energy chasing our tails. And so I think one of the things that has been kind of productive is that we are all doing this very, very part-time It's an amazing group of people who have really strong commitments to community, but very limited time. And so we've had to make a lot of choices and our choices tend to be organized around the question of how will this help us to move the people who can make the decision for us, right? So if Ed Cuddy, who is the manager of the Millennium Library, if he is the decision maker, what can we do to build power that will change his opinion? And if we can't move him, is it the next person up the chain? And so really trying to think strategically about Who has the power to give us what we want? And how do we move those people, given the numbers that we have? 
given the resources that we have, given the different relationships and the networks that we are embedded within in Winnipeg. And so we've had to make a lot of choices about how to spend our time. So for example, I can definitely imagine myself being part of a campaign where I'd be like, oh, I don't really know, like, should we go to this small city council meeting? Like, is that going to be a good use of our time to go to the city council meeting and make a presentation? Are they going to listen to us? Are they just going to brush us off? I think that uncertainty and lack of strategic planning causes lots of us to default to try to fight the fight in the public sphere, like just be angry about it in public and hope that somebody somewhere responds. And that kind of strategy in that context, like Ed Cuddy would have been able to just hide in his office without actually feeling the heat of the decision that he's been responsible for. So identifying who the decision makers are, where they are, where they're going to be, who puts pressure on them, like what pressures they feel that they're under. That's been a very awesome thing. And it sounds obvious when you talk about it, but I think that's actually just not how most of us have been trained to think about campaigns. When I used to do a lot of organizing training in the U.S., people would always get when I was like, there is such thing as the public. We cannot move the public. The public cannot give us what we want. Because I think there is a real intuition that like we just have to make our case. If we have a compelling enough argument that that will carry the day. And we know that that is not the case, right? That we have to build power in order to change power relations. And that's what we're trying to do with, like, with the campaign. It's not about winning hearts and minds, so I think we have that going for us with this campaign, but it is really about building the power we need to change the system of decision-making at the library and I think across Winnipeg, because this is, as we've said, like much, much bigger than just the library. So with your recent victory at City Council, where they decided not to make the security checkpoints permanent, what does that mean for Millennium for All moving forward? Well, it is a big win that they did not make security permanent and that they voted to recommend basically $600,000 of new funding for a more robust social investment in the library. This is definitely just the beginning. We know that we cannot in any way let up the pressure on this campaign because the security is still in place. It is still pushing people out every day. It will likely be in place through the winter. And that means that all of those people who we've been saying are being harmed will be harmed even more and for even longer. And like so for people us, will die because people of this. will absolutely die. And so for us, it's about how do we get a commitment for timelines for an exit strategy? How do we get specific, measurable things in place through public consultation that should have happened before this ever went in? So we're starting to think about how do we continue to build our base? How do we bring in more people who are committed to protecting the future of the library and public space in Winnipeg? And we are thinking about how do we increasingly escalate our tactics so that the library can't just like fritter away the time and like not take seriously the lives that are at stake, but really, really increase the pressure so that we have a specific deadline for when that security will be out and when there will be robust, humane alternatives in place. One thing that I want to name that I think is complicated is that the Millennium for All team has been largely white and largely middle class, upper middle class folks. We are putting forward a really aggressive framework of anti-racism and anti-colonialism while we are also sitting with that. 
So yeah. we're really taking that seriously, I think, and trying to build something that is bigger and that is accountable to a lot of different communities. But as we know, sometimes in order to build the power, you first have to have a small victory in order to demonstrate that participating in collective action is worth people's time. So that's where we're starting from with this small victory. And I think that the possibilities are endless. You have been listening to my interview with Joe Kernow and Bronwyn Dobchik-Land of the group Millennium for All. To learn more about their work, search for Millennium for All on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.